The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them up to Ephesians chapter 2? Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. If you have a phone or a tablet, you can open that up to Ephesians 2. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay. We have hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can use one of those. We don't really put verses on screens here at Fathom, so I'd love for you to have the text in front of you. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is on page 976 in those hardback black Bibles. Bibles. So grab hold of that. Uh, as you're turning there, the question I want us to, to talk about today is this. W- what is it that happens to relatively sane, educated, somewhat in- intelligent human beings that would make them decide to wake up early on a day off and come to church? Like, like, what is it that, um, that clicks in a person, that clicks in an individual, that makes them come to a room and stand up and sing out loud or raise their hands or get on their knees or pray or, goodness, take notes during a sermon or, or, or even, even when they are hit with the immensity of who God is and what he might do for them, even shed tears and, and weep? What is it that happens to sane, ordinary human beings who are one day normal, and then something switches in us and breaks in us and unleashes in us, and all of a sudden we've got like a passion that drives our lives for a God who we've never seen. Like, what happened to us? I mean, really, what happened to me? What happened to me? Because I wasn't, uh, like, I wasn't raised in the church. I wasn't a church kid, y'all. So I didn't grow up in this. What happened to me when a, I was, I'm, literally, I was a normal 16-year-old kid. I was a normal 16-year-old minding my own business. I did normal 16-year-old things. Things that I could tell you, things that I wouldn't want you to know. Okay, I did normal things. I talked with normal friends. I had normal language that I, I was just normal. I was a normal, ordinary kid. And then the summer before my junior year of high school, something happened to me. And I just became this freak show. I mean, really, like I, I was pretty popular before I became a Christian. Like at school, I was voted homecoming king. And then I got saved. And one of the youth guys told me that I should start bringing my Bible with me to school so that I could evangelize and people would know I was a Christian. So I did it. Can you imagine that? A preacher telling somebody to do something and they did it. So I did it. I brought my Bible with me to school. And I was all of a sudden the Bible boy. People called me Bible boy at, at school. What happened to me to do that? Like, what happened to me? I mean, I, was, I went from going to every party every weekend to radically needing an entire new set of friends because I just couldn't do the things that I used to do. I couldn't be around the same people lest I follow their actions. What happened to me? I went from being semi-respectable, like a normal human being, to something totally radically different. What happened to do all of this? To me, I was just minding my own business, y'all. I wasn't looking for it. I was just kind of doing my thing when all of a sudden something switches in me and I have a passion and I've got to have him. I've got to know more about him. I've got to share about him. I've got to worship him. What is it that happens to us? What is it that clicks where, where God becomes the ultimate thing in our affections and we have to worship him? 
what happens? Our text today is going to address this. I think our text today is going to answer that question. Today I want to show you from Ephesians chapter 2 how a worshiper of God is created. How a worshiper of God is created. And I just want you to know, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 is probably, very likely, my favorite section of text in the entire Bible. I love this section I tried to think of a section I love more and I could not come up with one. God has used these verses more in my life than any other passage. More in my life than any other passage. And, and so like I told you, I got saved at the end of high school. So, so and there was a real thing, right? Like it happened when I was 16 and it was a real, like I got saved. But then a few years later, I moved up to Denver. I started going to CCU, okay? CCU, holler at you, okay? As a sophomore in, in college at Colorado Christian University, I was attending a little Baptist church. And on one Sunday, just like this, I was sitting in a pew in this little Southern Baptist church when the preacher taught from the book of Ephesians, taught Ephesians chapter two, just like we're doing this fall, working through the text verse by verse. And as a 19 year old guy, college student, I'm sitting in a church. I hear this passage preached and it broke me. This text broke something in me. And listen, I was saved before that day. I was saved before that day, but if there was any questions in my mind about whether I was in or out, this was the moment of breaking. And I know it's not correct theology, but that day I got saved again. I don't know how that works. Maybe I, maybe I renewed my faith or something, but something broke in me hearing this text and it changed me. A 19 year old guy with my friends sitting in a pew and I'm crying, I'm weeping which is not a good vibe for 19-year-old guys, unless you're wanting a Christian girl, and then it's like catnip, okay? Just so you know. Just so you know. That's, that's, yeah, that's good. So what happened? What happened to me? Well, a worshiper of God was created. This text tells us how. Now, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, really has two sections. It has bad news, it has good news. And as evangelical Christians, we often love to focus on the good news, and for right reason. But I want us to spend an extra portion of time on the bad news, because if you don't know the bad, you cannot appreciate the good. So this, this might feel a little heavier, but I, I, I trust that this is what God has for us today. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, take a look at your text with me. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. That's verse one. Paul, in chapter one, has given us a theology lesson about how people get saved. If you remember that two weeks ago, I gave you the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, and showed you kind of the process by which God saves people. And then last week, Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened towards that truth, that we would get head knowledge, but it would also be, be our hearts would be softened to receive it in our hearts, that we would feel it and experience the truth. But then in chapter two, he starts by reminding those Ephesian Christians who they were before Christ saved them. And he starts by saying, hey, don't you remember? Like, don't you remember who you used to be? Don't you remember 
who you were before Jesus pulled you out of the muck and the mire. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And that's the first point I want to give you about the bad news. You, you were dead. You were dead. This text teaches us that Jesus did not come to merely tweak us. Right? Like, we weren't, we weren't immoral people who needed to get moral. Okay, we weren't sick people who needed to get healthy. We weren't bad people who just needed a, a life coach or a counselor or a mentor. Like, we weren't pretty good, like pretty decent folk, and we just needed Jesus to come in and kind of push us over the ed of, edge of goodness. Now, the text just told us that we were dead people. And we needed to be brought back to life. This wasn't, uh, there's still some good in him, I know it. Was that Star Wars? The good one, okay? The old one. That's Star Wars. It is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. You were not a bad person in need of some help. You were a dead person in need of a savior. So you may have heard the illustration. Sometimes preachers use this illustration about salvation, that, that we are in the ocean and we are drowning in a storm. We're bobbing around and Jesus was in the lifeboat and he kind of rowed on over to us and, and throws us the thing and we grab a hold of it. And he rescues us and pulls us into the boat from certain peril. Um, and that's the gospel. You may have heard this. Maybe you heard something like that, an illustration like that. It's a cute story, not the gospel. Not the Bible, y'all. Okay, why? Because the truth is, we aren't out in the water treading. We aren't bobbing around hoping to be rescued. Actually, think about the movie Titanic. Remember the movie Titanic? Okay, you aren't Rose floating on that door, selfishly watching Leonardo just slip down into oblivion. You're not Rose, you're Leo. You were dead. We were face down, drowned, fish already nibbling at our remains dead. We were dead. And Jesus brings us back to life. He doesn't save us from peril. He brings us back to life from death. Dead people can't do anything about their deadness. You know that? Right? You, 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 if you're dead, you're dead. It's not like you've never seen a, a dead person grab those paddles, clear, and just shock themselves back to life. <laughs> dead people don't do that. You need somebody else to bring you back. You can't do anything about your deadness. This is who we were before Christ saved us. This is who I was back in high school, okay? I was a totally normal kid. Totally normal, doing normal things, minding my own business, but what I didn't know is that I was, in fact, spiritually dead. Uh, theologically, we call this uh, the doctrine of total depravity. Doctrine of total depravity. You were dead in your sins. The doctrine of depravity is every part of your life was tainted by sin. Tainted by sin. You were unable to revive yourself. You are depraved. And the doctrine of total depravity teaches that, um, that sin is not so much an action as it really is a condition. 
Sin is not necessarily an action, things we do, but rather it's a condition. It's, it's who we are, all right? So the illustration is, uh, think COVID for a second, okay? Listen, you don't have COVID. If you're like, oh man, I think I've got COVID. You don't have it because you're sneezing and coughing and running a fever. Actually, the only reason why you're sneezing and coughing and running a fever is because you have COVID. You aren't sick because you have symptoms. You have symptoms because you are sick. You see the difference there, don't you? You aren't a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. So if I was to ask you, like, hey, how many of you guys are liars? Some of you might raise your hand if you're a little honest or meek or whatever. But, like, you you probably, no, I'm not a liar. But then if I was like, oh, when was the last time you lied? Like, well, I lie from time to time, but I'm certainly not a liar. Are you? Are you sure? I lie, but I am not a liar. No, no, no. You lie because you're a liar. You sin because you're a sinner. It is a condition. It's not merely an action. Now, some are going to push back on depravity. Some are going to push back on the idea of the doctrine of total depravity because they will say things like, well, that makes us sound like we aren't capable of any good, of anything good. Like we're all just a bunch of moral monsters. And listen, I frankly know that's not true because I've done some good in my life. It's a pushback. And listen, you probably have done some good in your life. I'm not going to argue with you on that one because being totally depraved does not mean that we are all as bad as we could be or that we commit sin all the time like it's only sin that we do or even that before we were saved or we weren't Christians that we could not do good things. Like, listen, your, your pagan neighbors can be gracious and charitable and kind and loving. They can do all of those things. Those are good things. But, but total depravity doesn't mean that you are completely 100% soiled in your sin. It means that you are dead in it and it's touched every part of your being and there's nothing you can do on your own about it. John MacArthur uses this illustration. I thought it was helpful. He says, pretend you're on a battlefield, okay? A battlefield like Gettysburg or something, and there are 20 dead corpses on a battlefield. Uh, He says some of them might look worse than others, right? Like some of them, depending on how damaged the body was during the battle, some of them may even be barely recognizable anymore. Others, though, might show very few signs of damage. Like some might be advanced in the decay process. Others may not be. But in the end, it doesn't matter if you look okay. The important detail is they're all dead. So to quote the the great philosopher Jerry Seinfeld, uh, This is what Jerry says. You can't over dry your laundry. Same reason you can't over wet. You see, when something's wet, it's wet. Same thing with death. Like once you die, you're dead. Let's say you drop dead and I shoot you. You're not going to die again. You're already dead. You can't over die. You can't over dry. You were in your nature, spiritually dead and rotting. And you might be able to smell okay for a while because you can cover up with all sorts of you know, things like religion and manners and culture. Like you can maybe cover that stench up for a little bit, but you're still dead. You were dead. This is the first part of the bad news of the gospel. You were dead. But there's more. Verse two. 
It's going to take us a while, y'all. Okay, verse 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All right. Question, who is the prince of the power of the air? Yeah, Satan. It's the devil. This is what Paul just said. You once walked following the course of this world, following the devil. It's point two of depravity. You followed the devil. Now, when we think of those who follow the devil, um, We've always got a picture in our head of like a weird guy out in the woods with like a tattoo on his forehead sacrificing animals. Like, like, right, like if I were to tell you, hey, draw me a picture of a Satan worshiper, you, this is what you would, you'd be drawing something spooky, something creepy. That's what you would definitely be thinking. But the Bible just told, Paul just told us that we have all been there. You were dead and you followed the devil. This is part of your depravity. Now, likely you are saying to yourself, surely not me. Like I'm, I am not a Satanist. I never was a Satanist. There's no way I followed the devil. But then listen, biblically, every time you told a lie, not be a liar, but every time you lied, okay? Every time you told a lie, every time you knew the right thing to do, you knew, hey, this is what God would want me to do, but I'm going to do it this way. I want to do it my way. Every time you do it your way, every time you said in your heart, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I've got this. Don't worry. God, you take some time off. I'll follow this way. Every time you did that, you were in league with the enemy. All of us have done this. All of us have done this. Now, as I'm studying this section of scripture this week, I thought, man, um, if you are a guest with us today, which many of you are, okay, like if you were a guest with us today, especially, listen, if you're new to Christianity or goodness, not even a follower of Jesus, this could be kind of weird. The prince of the power of the air, what is going on here? Like sons of disobedience, the devil, do you really believe that? Y'all really believe this stuff? Sounds more like stranger things than, than, than the Bible, It sounds like Dungeons and Dragons in here, not like Jesus. Like, what's happening here? Do we really believe that we once were all in league with the enemy? Theologically, we do. But listen, it just just doesn't always look like what we think it's going to look like. It's not that creepy guy in the woods killing cats. It's just not that. That's not what Satan is doing. You know why? Because Satan's smarter than that. Because he's smarter than that. Because you'd see right through that in an instant. He don't need to do that because he's not trying to get you to believe in that kind of stuff. Satan's main objection, the devil's main objection, our enemy's main objection is to capture the loyalties of men and women and divert them away from the worship of God. That's what he wants to do. That's all he wants to do. He wants to get you to worship something other than Jesus, and he wins. And so it's not going to look like what you see in the cinema. 
He wants you to love something other than Jesus, but that thing will ultimately betray you and kill you. That's what the text says. You were dead. You followed the devil. One more. You see why this is my favorite passage? Yeah? Anybody like, oh man, I wish I would have slept in, you know, <laughs> rather than come here? Okay, that's fine. Ephesians 2, it gets, it gets gooder. It gets goodly, okay? Just give me a second. It gets worse one more time. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of of mankind. You were dead. You followed the devil. And now you deserved wrath. Do you know that apart from Christ, you and I were children of wrath. Children of wrath. Uh, you, we, don't, we don't hear about wrath a whole lot in church anymore. Right? We don't talk about this a lot. It's not super popular. There's no like worship songs about it. Like, your wrath, oh Lord, burn me to a crisp. And you're like, yes. <laughs> oh, Jesus, thank you. You know, just, it'd be weird. I'm talking to Amanda, trying to get her to play it, but uh, <laughs> it's not caught on. Caleb is not picking that one up. <laughs> and listen, like if, if you're my age, like let's just say you're 40 or younger, this isn't just an archaic idea. This is actually an offensive idea. You're like, I mean, if I said you, you are a child of wrath and you're younger, you're, I mean, your first inclination is probably like, why don't you just shut up, pastor? I'm a snowflake. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a rainbow, right? My mom told me I was unique and special like everyone else, right? <laughs> That's, that's the verbiage of our age. And here's what I would like to say. No, no. You are exactly like everyone else. You're exactly like everyone else. Because of our sin, because of my sin, because of your sin, because of our rebellion against God, we are all deserving. We are children of his wrath. I think before we move on to verse four, we need to let this sink in. We need to let this sink. We need the bad news to sink in because listen, we've forgotten this. We've, we've, we've forgotten this. See, a lot of times we try to jump straight to the good news of the gospel without grappling with the bad news. So it's like, hey, just get to the part about love. Just get to the part about Jesus. Just get to the part about faith. Like what? Hope, love, devil. Like why are you talking to us about this, Chris? But now hear me. Every doctor knows that if you misdiagnose the disease, you will misprescribe the cure. If you don't really understand the problem, you will never really truly embrace the solution. This is why we must spend time reflecting on. This is why Paul says, remember where you were. You were dead. You were dead. The guest pre uh, great preacher, um, Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon says this. I'll put this up on the screen. The reason we think too lightly of the Savior is we think too lightly of sin. Only he who has stood before his God, feeling the rope of God's judgment about his neck, 
will be the man to weep for the joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which he has been forgiven of. Listen, as evangelicals, we get so geeked out on the good news, and rightly so. But sometimes we forget the bad. Listen, 20 years ago, I was sitting in a pew in a Baptist church when I heard this text preached and I realized how helpless I was and how hopeless my situation was, that I was totally depraved. And then what I heard next in verse four and following caused worship to explode out of me. The good news made me a worshiper. So look at, okay, here we go. Verse four. God, I love these pas- this passage, okay? Verse four, I'm gonna read verse four through 10. I wanna just read it all because I love it so much. We'll read the whole thing, okay? And then we're gonna get into it. Ephesians two, look at verse four. But God, I lied. Stop right there, okay? <laughs> but God, the, the great theologian John Stott calls those two words the greatest two words ever spoken. But God. Like all that stuff in verses one through three was true. You were dead, okay? You followed the devil. You deserved the wrath of God. You were totally depraved. All of that is true, but God. Oh, our great hope is in the buts in the Bible, y'all. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the high heavenly places in Christ Jesus, So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse eight, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship. The word in the Greek there is poema. We are his poem. We are his workmanship, his art, his craft. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You want to know why worship explodes in the heart of a Christian? You want to know what happened to us, what happened to me? Just 16-year-old minding my own business and then bam, a totally different Chris wrecked for the gospel. You want to know what happened to us? This happened. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 happened. We heard the bad news and then we saw the good news and God rescued us. I want to give counterpoints here to the bad news, okay? The three bad news points. I want to give us counterpoints from the good news. So let's remember the bad news. You were dead. That's the first part. But now, verse 5, you're made alive. You're made alive. Here's the gospel. On the cross, Jesus becomes our sin. First Corinthians says that he became sin. 
He becomes our sin. He dies a sinner's death. He was treated by God like he was the follower of Satan, like he was the son of disobedience, like he was the child of wrath. That's what he, what he did. He bore our sins. He took our place so that we could be made alive. I mean, remember, dead people aren't doing anything about their deadness. But when Jesus shows up and dies on the cross, he undid our deadness. He undoes it. He paid for the damages to make us alive. We say this all the time. He lived the life we were supposed to live, and he died the death we were condemned to die. So you may have heard it like this. Jesus did not merely die for us. He died instead of us. So you were dead. Now you're made alive. Counterpoint number two, you once followed the devil, but now verse six, you're seated with Christ. You are seated with Christ. Now I want you to notice something in the text. So if you look at verse six again, I want you to notice the verb tense. Because verb tenses actually matter when you're talking in the scriptures. And it says that he raised us up with him and seated us with him. So it doesn't say that he will seat us. It says that he seated us. It says that we are already seated with Christ in God's presence. Actually, if you were to read through those, those 11 verses again, you would see that almost all of it is written in the past tense as if it had already happened. This needs a theological explanation. This needs some work, okay? So just for a moment, let's do some theology work. So I just want you to pull on your big boy, big girl theology pants. We're gonna, you can handle this, I promise. We're going to work through this. I want to talk about sanctification for a moment. So if you were here three weeks ago and you saw the order of salvation, you saw that sanctification is kind of a middle step in our salvation. After you're saved, before you die and you are made perfect in glory, in between those two times, after you are saved, before you die, is the process of sanctification. It's becoming more and more and more like Jesus day by day until you're ushered to glory. So that's sanctification, but sanctification theologically has two dimensions to it. This is where it gets confusing, okay? So we talk all the time here at Fathom about progressive sanctification, that's what I just ta- 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 told you about. Day by day, progressively becoming more like Jesus. Not overnight, but over time, becoming mature in Christ. That's progressive sanctification. But the second dimension of sanctification is called positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. So sometimes you'll read in the text that it says, you were sanctified. As in, that's something that's already happened and is complete But if we are progressively sanctified on this earth, then what is he talking about? Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. You are positionally with Christ. Positionally, when Christ saved me, I was seated with Christ in glory. I'm not there yet, though. Right? Do you think I'm there yet? Because I'm here. I mean, like literally and spiritually, I'm here, okay? (laughs) This isn't like a mirage. I'm really genuinely like here today. So I'm not seated next to Christ in glory right now. But positionally, it's like I'm already there. What that means is that 
in the instant that God saved me, in God's eyes, from his viewpoint, it was like I was seated with Christ at the place of honor around God's throne. Now, what does this matter? What does this doctrine matter? Positional sanctification. Why does this matter? Well, what it means is that now I cannot earn any more of God's favor. You see, sometimes we think that we are saved like I pay for things with a credit card. Like God pulled out his heavenly credit card and Jesus paid it all on the cross. He swiped it. Or if you're old school, right? You get the little black stuff on your fingers. Remember that? Okay, so it's like that. It just lost this half of the room. Uh, (laughs) But we sometimes think that it's like God paid for us with credit. And then now our sanctification is like the bill has come and we've got to earn it back from him. We've got to pay him back. Jesus paid it all. Now I'll pay you back, right? Like that's, but that's not what we sing. It's not what happened here. I am already positionally sanctified. That means I don't move up or down in God's affections based on my performance. Okay, this is theology. This is big stuff. Let me apply it because you've got to get this. This is the illustration. Okay, this is really important. It's easy to think that our position with God is determined by how we're doing. Um, like when I've had an awesome week, which is all the time, okay? I, just, I mean, I float when I wake up. So uh, that's not true. But like when I've had, an, like if I've had an awesome week, right? Like I've just, I've been in the word every day. Like I've been reading my Bible. I've been getting things out of it. Like imagine I just shared Christ with three people. One of them got saved. Like what a week, okay? I was super nice to my wife, even though she was a big jerk to me, right? I mean, that's like, <laughs> never happens. But like, like I was really patient with my daughter. Like can you imagine on those awesome weeks, I can walk into this room, get into the back of the room, put on my Face Mike starts singing along with the team, and I can think, oh man, God must be so pleased with me this week, because did you see what I did this week? I mean, he must be so pumped to have me on his team. And I can th- I think those things. I can think those things. But then I can have a bad week, which normally happens the week after a good week, right? <laughs> it's a pride thing, okay? But, but like, I don't even pick up my Bible, And I don't share Christ with anyone. In fact, I cussed one guy out while driving, probably drove him further from Christ because I got a fathom sticker on the back of my car. It's a big ordeal, okay? And I was a jerk to Marcy, though she was super sweet to me. And man, I just lost it at my daughter Harper. And like, it's easy to think when I've had a bad week and I just drag myself into this place and I put on my face mic and I'm back singing and I just think I'm down a few notches with God. It's easy to believe that God is displeased and disappointed with me and that I'm less in his grace than when I've had an awesome week. Like, I can think that. I think if you were honest, you'd probably say, I think that sometimes too. But all this means is that we don't understand the gospel. You were seated with Christ. This means that you were put in that position before you did anything to earn it. You aren't seated with Christ based on your record. You're only there based on his record. And listen, that means you're secure in it because his record is perfect. And that all moves to my last point. Number three, remember you deserved wrath, but now you're given grace. You're given grace. 
verses eight and nine. Oh, if you don't memorize these two verses, I'm, I mean, this, these are the two. If you memorize anything in the Bible, I know y'all don't like to memorize things, but try, I don't like to either, okay? But these two, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. That's the verse, y'all. Gosh, it's what we said in the first week of Ephesians, okay? It's, it's God who saves you. It's God who chose you, and it's God who called you. It's not you. You have been saved. You didn't save you. God saved you. It certainly wasn't you. It wasn't even some sort of like weird cooperation where like God reached his hand halfway down, and you kind of like reached up and grabbed a hold of his finger, and he just lifted you. No, not at all. You were dead, remember? Dead things don't move. Listen, do you know why it's so important that this isn't of your own doing? That's what the text says. This is not of your doing. You want to know why this is so important? The text tells us so that no one would boast. You see, if, if you saved you, or if you even played a part like in this whole hand-grabbing illustration, like if you saved you or you did that, then you have something you can boast in. You could boast in that. You could stand before God in heaven and he could say, hey, why should I let you in here? And completely justifiably, legitimately, you could say, bro, I grabbed your hand. Bro, I decided to follow you. Look at my good works. Look at all I did. Look at all I gave. Look at all. You could say that. You could boast in your works and say, God, that's why you should let me in here. The problem is that when confronted with God in the scriptures, no one talks about themselves. You ever notice that? No one's just like, hey, check me out, God. Like, I mean, often the Bible, no, no one in the Bible ever comes to God and his encounter and, and walks in with a swagger. No one swaggers into God, no matter how awesome they are on this earth. I'll give you two examples, okay? The prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah, pretty legit. Can we agree? Big book in the Bible. You got a book named after you? No, he's more legit than me. Chris isn't in there. I just, you probably, uh, yeah, Mark. Okay, that's all right. You darn Christian families naming your kids after Bible characters. Yeah, that, that illustration fell fast. So let's just agree that Isaiah is better than all of us. Can we agree on this? Okay. Isaiah is pretty legit. When Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel, is confronted by God, he falls on the ground, and this is what he says. Isaiah chapter 6. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah doesn't go, you seen all that prophesying I've been doing down there? How about that? Pretty good, huh? He falls down. Woe is me. Um, another one from the New Testament, the Apostle John. Uh, John had a nickname. His nickname was the, uh, the, the Apostle who Jesus loved, the one who Jesus loved. Now, granted, he was only called that in the Gospel of John, uh, which was written by... John, okay, so whatever. But that was his nickname, okay? Now, John, can we agree? John's more legit than you. 
he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation, or recorded it. Okay, so like, anybody else written five books of the Bible? Mark? Okay, good. All right. (laughs) The apostle who Jesus loved in Revelation chapter 1 Jesus, in all of his glory, reveals himself to John. And the text says that John falls on the ground like a dead man. The guy who had his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, reclining with his Savior, the one who he loved, falls on the ground like a dead man when he sees Christ. That's the response of the sinner saved by grace. We become worshipers. We become worshipers. You see, when, when you see the bad news, church, when you hear the bad news, when you know that you are depraved, that you are utterly dead, that you are lost, that you are helpless, when you see the truth and the reality of that, and then you begin to see the good news, the beauty of what God did for you, of what he saved in you. When you see that, it'll change everything. It'll change everything. When that becomes real in you, it turns you into a very odd person. It turns you into a very odd human being. You leave the world of normalcy. I mean, we're just not normal. We leave that world when Christ saves us and we start to turn to the cross and we just say, you're so good. You are so good. I just want to sing to you. I just want to pray to you. I just want to be near you. It's the heart of a worshiper. Listen, it's what's happened to me. It's what's happened to so many of us in here. And I have a feeling that some of you, maybe you've been saved, but, but maybe some of you feel it happening to you. Even this morning, maybe you've not known the depths of the bad news. And today, he's just kind of squeezing on you a little bit. See, that's what happened to me more than 20 years ago. I was already saved, but he woke me up to my total depravity and to his great love with which he loved me. So here's my confidence then from this text from Ephesians chapter 2. When this happens to you, if that's happening to you, like if you have a desire for God to save you, if you have a desire in your heart, then that's proof that he's already working there. If you have that desire, you're like, I just want this to be true. If you have that desire in your heart, he's already at work in you because the one who is dead in their trespasses and following the prince of the power of the air and a child of God's wrath, that person is not capable of having these kind of affections towards Jesus. This evidence is the longing that you feel is working in you. And maybe some of you, if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, but you had that dead Satan wrath stuff. That's, I feel that, but, but gosh, I've just done so much. I've done so much. I've got such a mess in my life. I've got so many issues. And you start to feel guilt about this. I just want to, you know, that's not God guilting you. That's actually the good gift of conviction from the Holy Spirit. The dead person doesn't feel convicted of their sin either. 
but God lovingly convicts us saying, hey, give those things up. Give them up to me. Come to me. Let me heal. Let me fix. Let me show you my great love for you. Listen, guilt only remains for a moment. It only remains for a moment when you see the freedom that you find in Christ. So what happened to me, y'all? I saw my depravity and I saw God's great mercy and grace for me and I've never been the same. And this is what drives my worship. This is why I'm a freak. What about you? What about you? Let's pray together. Father, we bless you today. This is... God, you know that this is my favorite passage of scripture. What a treat it is to teach it. What a treat it is to remember it. What a treat it is to know both the good and the bad. Lord, I pray for the men, the women, the students in this place who who don't yet believe this bad and good news. Holy Spirit, would you do what we cannot We can preach the word, but only you can open the eyes of our heart. Would you open eyes today? If you haven't already, would you do so now? Spirit, move. Reveal to us the truth of our depravity and the necessity of our Savior. Make the bad news so bad and the good news so good, Father. And even for those of us who maybe have We've put our faith in Christ, but we've never really had our heart awakened to the reality of how dark it was and how good you are. Would you call us forth, Father, into into more life, to abundant life, to full life, that we would be odd, that we would not be normal because of what this text says about us. Holy Spirit, would you move in our midst is what we're asking.